It's time for security now. Steve Gibson is back. The latest security news coming up, including results from the Pwn to Own contest. And then we'll get back to iOS security. Steve's very impressed more about how the iPhone 5S keeps you safe next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 447, recorded Tuesday, March 18th, 2014. iOS Security, part two. Security Now is brought to you by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way it ought to be, anonymously and without oversight. For 20% off your new account, go to ProXPN.com slash twit and use the code SN20. And by ShareFile. Enhance your workflow. Send files of almost any size easily and securely with ShareFile from Citrix. Try ShareFile today for a 30-day free trial. Visit ShareFile.com, click the microphone, and enter Security Now. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you and your loved ones online, your privacy too. And here he is, uh, the explainer-in-chief. Steve Gibson. Hi, Steve. Good to see you. And I hey, I didn't say anything last week because I, I thought maybe he just didn't shave. Well, there have been scruffy times. And I, you know, with, with an HD cam, you really can't get away from scruffy any longer. So, but yeah, this is the this is an experiment that was that was triggered by Harrison Ford coming out on stage during the uh, Academy Awards. And I thought, huh, he, he was, you know, sort of unshaved chin. And I thought, well, that's kind of the coloration I would have. Now I'm not comparing myself to Harrison by any means, and I don't think anybody else will make that same mistake. But well, you're still, a damn fine looking man, and I uh, and, <laughs> and I think that uh, they, it's they, too too bad we're 500 miles apart. <laughs> I, I I almost I almost thought that you were going to do uh, that. Uh, I thought it was going to be a goatee, but I've been informed. By the way, here's a Harrison Ford with his look. I think you you know put on some sunglasses. Age about ten years, you could be. And get, get some hair on my head. That'd yeah, be good. Yeah. Well, he yeah, does have quite good. a bit of hair up top, doesn't he? And he I still he he's still with Callista. That's cool. Yeah, Callista Flockhart, his wife. Yeah. Yeah. And his son uh, Shaquille O'Neal. So. And was he married before? I don't oh, know the story. I don't Paris. follow that. Let's. Uh, this is. Yeah, okay, I'm not good. Perez Hilton. Ne- neither of us. <laughs> I do. I do. <laughs> I, mean, I dimly yeah. remember that before Star Wars, he was working as a carpenter. But so I imagine he probably had. You know they they call it the. Uh, I think I remember that too. Yeah, the original yeah. wife, and then the Hollywood wife. And he was really fit as a consequence because he was, you know, Ripped. out in the sun and yep. hammering yep. and sawing things. Uh, but that's not what we're here to talk about. We're no, gonna... we're actually going to do a podcast, yeah. believe it or not, and we're going to continue. Gonna... It's part two. Yes, um, as I thought, we did not have a chance to to finish part one last week, and there will be nominally even a part three. Um, because the one thing I want to talk about, which which these first two parts actually set us up for really well, and it's a topic we have never addressed, and that is jailbreaking. If all of this is so good, then what is jailbreaking? 
And it's not a topic in the you know nine plus years we've been doing this that we've ever come across. So I think we will pause for Q and A because I'm sure there'll be Q and A from these last two podcasts, and then then I'm planning to talk about jailbreaking in 449. Oh, I like that. We but had for now. We had a guy but, in here last week when we were talking about security who was saying I'm a jailbreaker. Was very, you know I do jailbreak software and was adamant it did not compromise security. So I'm very curious about your opinion on them. Apple, of course, says it does. But they have other reasons for not wanting you to jump. Yeah, yeah, true, because it, it, it breaks their control. Right. But I would say even that, I mean, we've seen that were it not for iOS security just, I mean, being as, as soup to nuts as it has been designed, we know there's tremendous pressure on getting in there. So that's what's going to happen. So and anyway, this week we did have the 14th annual we've we've never failed to cover this because it always produces some interesting security news, the 14th annual CanSec West uh security conference up in Vancouver which is which has the you know famous pwn to own contest and out of that came some not surprising pwn to owns but also a disturbing revelation that exactly fits with this podcast because and many people were tweeting me about this worried and wanted to know what it meant because it talked about uh it was a it was a presentation disclosing the the so-called early random pseudo random number generator newly devised for iOS version 7 which is unfortunately a little more pseudo than we would like. So we'll talk about that. Also, just a little blurb about how cloud storage costs have just, have just collapsed thanks to a recent announcement by Google and what they're going to be charging. Um, an interesting 10-point plan to thwart NSA surveillance. A little update on Squirrel. And then we'll plow into the second half of our iOS security analysis. Wow. A jam-packed day, but we can do it. Steve Gibson, our show today, I should mention before we get too deep into the weeds here, brought to you by ProXPN. Steve's talked before about the need to uh, secure yourself on an open Wi-Fi access spot. I know many of you are getting a little more worried about being snooped upon in general. And, of course, uh, one of the primary risks is your own ISP. And in some ways, you might as well think of yourself as on an open access spot all the time. Uh, an open VPN is a great way to prevent that. It encrypts your traffic from you to the open VPN server. People first started using open VPN to log into uh, office you know, networks so that you could use uh, your work computer from home. But it really, it's expanded to much more than that. Not everybody wants to run a VPN server, though, and that's where ProXPN comes in. They do hosted open VPN and PPTP to give you secure surfing on the net, to give you the privacy you want from your ISP, to give you uh, the ability to uh, appear to be coming from other countries. That's one of the things that's kind of cool about using a hosted service. If you host it yourself, well, you're still going to come from your IP address, but when you use ProXPN, you come from their IP address in Dallas or Los Angeles or Seattle or New York or London or Amsterdam or Singapore. And that means you're bypassing any geographic restrictions. You're kerflumphing your ISP. And it, you can use open Wi-Fi access point, uh, points with complete impunity. 
ProXPN even lets you do it on Android and iOS with their mobile apps. The new Android app supports OpenVPN on the Android platform, which is very, very cool. Now, they have a free solution, and certainly if you want to try ProXPN, you can do that. But I've got a deal for you that might be even more desirable. Get the premium account, the high-quality account. You can cancel any time in seven days for a full refund. So you do get to try it at full speed with all the features. But I'm going to get you a special deal here. Notice $6.25 a month when you are billed annually, $10 a month when not. But we've got a special deal for you. If you use the offer code SN20, you're going to get 20% off. Less than five bucks a month on the yearly plan. That's a pretty big saving. And it's not just for the first month or first year, it's forever. That is a great deal. SN20. Create your ProXPN account now and surf safe. Surf securely. Surf privately. ProXPN accepts payment through Visa, through PayPal, and yes, through Bitcoin. ProXPN.com slash twit for more information. For our special offer, 20% off the lifetime of your account at proxpn.com. You know that it occurred to me that one of the reasons why a VPN would be advised uh, or it's a nice feature that they accept Bitcoin is anonymity. Yeah. You might, you know, you don't want to have necessarily give a provider who you're going to be using to obscure your identity your identity right up front i mean i'm i'm sure they would be responsible with it and and i know that their right. their terms of service are but you know it's this you know just in terms of prudence if you're wanting to establish an anonymous relationship then you want to do anonymous payment and you know bitcoin is the way that happens now yeah of course i mean they have logs uh, which they destroy period regularly so uh, but if somebody if law enforcement got to them soon enough before the logs were erased uh, and they knew who you are, then I guess that law enforcement could figure that out, unless you're using an, an anonymizing payment system like Bitcoin. Yeah, a buddy of mine did get a letter from his ISP saying, uh, we've been informed uh, that you downloaded something or other, right. you know, so, some movie. And he, he was upset that I hadn't protected him. I said, I, okay, we'll, we'll talk. Set him up. Yep. So we're going to be talking for some time, and I think this is an entirely valid subject for the Security Now podcast about the end of Windows XP. Um, Dvorak, our great friend, John, uh, did an interesting, had an interesting PC mag uh, column uh, titled the, Wind, the End of Windows XP. And, and his premise is that Microsoft is making a huge mistake that killing Windows XP is wasting billions of dollars that Microsoft could be earning. Mm -hmm. Um, He notes that, and this is a a well-known statistic, that about 500 million users are still, Windows users are still using XP. Half a billion people are using XP. So although 7 has has finally become the, the, the majority Windows platform, you know, I think XP peaked at around 800 million at its at its. Well, I just said it at its peak, um, and it's only dropped off from 800 to about 500 million. So, I mean, it is still a a significant platform. That's 
that that's 29% says John of the computers in the world so nearly one third of the computers in the world are on XP and we've got 20 days to go until April 8th and th this isn't going to change in that period of time so anyway John's point is that many do not want to upgrade to anything new as he says they are happy campers and and he wrote in this PC Mag article, he said, upgrading the Microsoft OS is a needless exercise in agony. I'd now and of course I, I should say he's he's assuming that security patches continue, which is a different issue than what we'll be largely talking about. But he says, I'd speaking of himself, still be using an XP machine for my podcasting if the machine itself had not crapped out. What's the point of changing for prettier icons? And so anyway, um, thinking about it, John's clearly right. When I, I'm because I'm sort of in the middle of this and am taking a somewhat contrarian view to this idea that, you know, oh, my God, the sky is falling. Um, I'm I'm seeing the the incredible anxiety that is being created in the marketplace by the end of this drip, drip, drip IV update feed that we've all been on for 12 years with XP. And what that means is there's money to be made. Um, in, and so what John proposes is if Microsoft just sold it, sold updates for a dollar a month in some fashion, that would be $12 a year times 500 million potentially. I mean, a lot of these people aren't going to be paying Microsoft. They're in dark corners of the globe, but still a chunk of money. And we know that Microsoft is still producing the XP patches because they can be purchased by cor under corporate agreement under paid extended service. So, wow, you know, I guess, I mean, clearly there's, there's a there's a a computation that Microsoft is making figuring this will force people to pay a couple hundred dollars to move to Windows 7 and that's got to be Microsoft's goal and you know we'll be covering this for months because you know there will be stories of various sorts there there's there's even a hysterical one that I, that will that we'll talk about but I put together what I call five steps for XP usage past April 8th. So the first is, now I, I did in my notes put run as a standard user. Uh, someone tweeted and reminded me that that term was developed after XP. Limited user is what is the term yeah. under XP. Yeah. Um, so run as a limited user. Remember, 100% of the IE exploits, which is the main way malware gets in, were blocked during all of 2013 if you just weren't an admin user. 100% of them. And what is it? In the 90s of like it's 92 the 92% for uh, yeah. operating system exploits. Yeah. So, you know, so that provides a huge amount of protection. Of course, remove Flash and Java. If you haven't done it before, do it now. But I'll also note that, remember, it's only the operating system that's going to stop getting its IV feed. All the other things, Flash, Java, Chrome, Firefox, 
they all continue to get updated. So, you know, and, and, and those are your contact with the, with the external environment. And those companies, Mozilla is going to stay on the ball. You'll be able to run Firefox, you know, version 212 on XP and, you know, Chrome and, and so forth. So all the other, all the other pieces continue moving forward. And if you do look back over the exploits, primarily they've been browser or they've been Java. So, so there, there truly is a lot that the user can do to, to protect themselves. So number two is remove Flash and Java. Three is use Chrome or Firefox, never IE. And, you know, XP hasn't been able to run those later versions of IE. I think XP stops at nine, uh, which is, you know, I don't use IE. I use, as everyone knows, Firefox from my browser, but I've got IE nine and I can't go any further because... It's not available for XP. Again, as another little pressure point that Microsoft puts on us. Um, also, Office exploits are a problem. I would drop Office and switch over to one of the open offices, and everyone says LibreOffice is the one. Apparently, it forked off of OpenOffice some time ago, and I guess sun or oracle got bored and decided okay fine we're you know we're gonna let go of it so LibreOffice is the one you want and of course keep that current and finally behave yourself online don't do dangerous things so you know we'll we'll certainly be following this as we go and and i, I and so the danger that i've already seen in tweets with my saying the world doesn't come to an end when the IV gets cut off. Um, is I'm I've been responding to people who are our podcast listeners who you know who aren't trying to use their XP machine in open Wi-Fi in order to surf to dark places, which they're not willing to do at home. For example, that's not safe because that's where the next month's zero-day exploits will begin to appear. And with this huge install base of XP, as you mentioned last week completely correctly, Leo, there will be bad guys looking to leverage what is learned about the platforms still being updated, but which are no longer available for XP. So... You know, and, and what we do see is many of these problems come, you know, affect the entire, uh, you know, like IE all versions that are supported back to nine, which would be the one that you've got on XP, which is why you don't want to use IE, not that you really ever did uh, in a safe way on a Windows XP machine. So an example of the kind of article that I, you know, I, I look at it and I just sort of shake my head. This was in um, a regional newspaper, uh, azcentral.com. The headline was 95% of ATMs could face hacking threat. And quoting from this article, it said, banks and other businesses have less than a month to get their plans in place before the the computer operating system powering about 95% of the country's ATMs becomes vulnerable to 
hackers and computer viruses. Nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, absolutely baloney. Then they quote Ken Colburn, president of Data Doctors, who says, if you're still running your equipment on Windows XP, you're open to a lot of new threats. All of the devices out there still running Windows XP have to get patched up and changed fairly quickly or they're going to be exposed to hacks. Colburn continued saying, there's still a large number of people out there that just don't realize how big a security threat this is. And I'm one of them. He said, uh, after April 8th, these hackers can come knocking and you're going to be defenseless. And I mean, and this is this is this strange notion that somehow without the IV feed into our OS, it it crumbles. It starts to decay. You know, it's it starts to die in some way, which is just not the case. And finally, uh, Scott Kinka, chief technology officer of Evolve IP, was quoted in the same article saying um, last Tuesday in an article for ATM Marketplace, which is obviously a, a vertical marketing rag for for uh, you know ATM purchasers. Uh, the article was titled, One Month from Today, XP Armageddon. Surprisingly, only 15% of financial institutions are expected to react before the April 8th cutoff, according to a recent ATM Industry Association survey. Okay, and that doesn't surprise me. Why? You couldn't have a sa- an example of a safer use of an operating system, any operating system, than in an ATM. It is, it's a classic embedded application. Nobody is surfing the web. Nobody with, that, with the ATM is going to, to hostile websites. And, you know, again, nothing is 100%, but an, a, an, an XP installation being used in an ATM. First of all, it's probably actually the XP embedded version of XP. Actually, it's not. It's, really? Yeah. I, um, I talked with a guy who uh, uh, just retired from Diebold who said it is Windows XP for embedded systems. That's not the same as embedded XP. It's the same bits as Windows XP. Okay. So, and anyway, Diebold was very, very, very concerned about this, looked into the idea of a volume license. Because if you're a volume licensee, you can pay for extended support. So I, their determination was most big banks are going to be considered volume licensees and they're going to pay for extended support. They will get support. But they were worried about small banks and Diebold was considering perhaps uh, lic- licensing it, then re-offering those updates to uh, the smaller banks. And I'm not sure what they decided to do. My, my take is that... It's a little bit like having to take everybody's shoes off while we board planes now. That is to say, if a company weren't, if we're still using XP, didn't have the security license from Microsoft and had a major problem, then they'd be in trouble. As like somebody's, you know, shoes exploding a, a second time if we weren't all having our shoes checked. My point is, I don't really believe there's any danger. I, I absolutely don't. There is, there is no rational way that 
an embed a, an embedded operating system with a you know a screen and a keyboard is somehow go, suddenly going to be prone to attack in two months if it isn't today. It, it just just you know I I will happily uh, and be very surprised if I'm proven wrong. But you know you guys deserve to know what I think. That's what I think. I just I don't see it. But I can, from a political standpoint, see the need to appear to be doing everything you can for your end user security, even if it's complete nonsense. There you have it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You you and And, I disagree a little bit, not completely, but in in terms of degree. I I think we'll find out in a month. Yes, I'm just going from the technology. There, you know, this it's not like the OS. I mean, it is incredibly mature. I mean, it's 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 a rock solid OS, and it's the, only the exposure to wait a minute, Steve. New, it is not a threat. rock solid OS. That's absurd. Sure. It's, well, it's, <laughs> it's not a, a rock, rock solid, solid OS. At, well, the, okay, then there is none. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe not, but it, it, yes, that's probably the case. It may be more rock solid than some, but it's not rock solid. Vista, Windows there's ex- 7. There's exploits every single month. They're critical exploits. For all of them, for every operating system. Well, yeah, but so, if they're no longer being patched, then it no longer is rock solid. Am I wrong? They're, they're rock solider if they're getting patched. It's not the operating system that okay. is the problem. And right. the, it's the operating system that is not going to get You're patched. You're saying it's the user that's the problem. The user is a big problem, and and the way these things get in, clicking on links in email, clicking on links in uh, in on web pages, uh, you know, malicious ads being served. None of these things apply in an embedded operating system, you know, like you have in an ATM. Anyway, or a yes. target point of we, sale system. We will have an interesting adventure yeah, for the next we'll few find months. Out. We'll we'll we're going to learn a lot one way or the other. I'm I'm happy to go on record, so okay. I'm on record. Right. Let's see how it turns out. Okay. <laughs> um, so, speaking of rock solid, uh, at the recent CanSec West uh, 2014 uh, annual security conference held in Vancouver last week, starting just after our last podcast. Um, Every major browser fell to the pwn-to-own hacking contest. Every one of them. Uh, there were zero-day exploits found against Chrome, IE, Safari, Firefox, and, and additionally, Flash Player and Adobe Reader. Um, there were three successful attacks against Firefox on the first day, um, and then another one on the second day. Um, a French team from uh, VuPen hacked Google Chrome, exploiting a use-after-free vulnerability that affects both the WebKit and the Blink rendering engines. The researchers then bypassed Chrome's sandbox protection to execute successfully arbitrary code on the underlying system. Another anonymous researcher presented a Chrome remote code execution exploit the next day, on Thursday, but... The contest judges only declared it a partial win because some details of the hack were similar to those of an exploit that was presented earlier at Google's own hacking contest, which runs in parallel to Pwn to Own during the Kansek West uh, conference. And another researcher um, with 
the Chinese team uh, Keen uh, combined a heap overflow vulnerability along with a sandbox bypass to achieve remote code execution in Safari. So, And then he and a fellow researcher demonstrated a remote code execution exploit in Adobe Flash Player. So basically all of these pieces were demonstrated to have problems which were at the time unknown to the software's publishers. Code ex- uh, remote code execution exploits were demonstrated, and of course, these will all be fixed immediately. This, by the way, supports the XP uh, Armageddon thesis next month. The reason that these have not been revealed is that all of these security researchers hold on to them until pwned yes. to own. Yes. <laughs> and it, 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 it just confirms the fact that people find exploits and hold on to them to an opportune, for an opportune moment. Right. Yeah. So XP using IE at Starbucks <laughs> on open Wi-Fi. Bad, bad idea. <laughs> surfing porn sites and downloading. Not, you know what, by the know, way, it ain't porn sites. It could be my site. Sites are infected, but routinely infected that, with malware yes. all the time. And it's it's, it's a misstatement to say you're on the dark side of the net. It could be a church site. In fact, it often is. Uh, it's just a it's a website that isn't purely properly secured. Those are the vectors. Correct. And so. even as we know, even ads. You know, yeah. they have you know JavaScript yeah. containing ads. It's Yahoo. Where the ads, it's the ads Yahoo. Get <laughs> passed. <It's>, yep. <laughs> so uh, you don't have to be doing deep and dark, dirty deeds. You can just true. be doing normal stuff. Yeah. So we set a record at CanSec West this year. The prizes won because they pay heavily for these. The prizes won during the second and final day of the competition put the total contest payout at a record. <laughs> sitting down? $850,000. And now you know why they hold on to those exploits. Yes. yes. And in fact... It was noted that Firefox was the most attacked and exploited browser at this year's Pwn to Own with those four new vulnerabilities. Um, and, and so uh, someone noted that though IE, Chrome, and Safari were all attacked and all were exploited, no single web browser was exploited at this year's Pwn to Own hacking challenge as much as Mozilla's Firefox. A fully patched version of Firefox was exploited four different times by attackers, each revealing a new zero-day vulnerability in the open-source web browser. When asked why Mozilla was attacked so much this year, Sid Stam, who's their senior engineering manager of security and privacy, responded, Pwn to Own offers a very large financial incentive to researchers to expose vulnerabilities. And that may have contributed in part to the researchers' decision to wait until now to share their work and help protect Firefox users. Pwn to Own event pays researchers $50,000 for each Firefox vulnerability, whereas Mozilla now pays a researcher only $3,000. Per vulnerability, so if you if you got one, <laughs> you keep it. are you gonna are you gonna tell Mozilla? Right. Are you gonna sign up for next year's you know pwned? You know that kind of makes me ne- mad because pwned is, is setting up a situation where companies yes. have to overpay for exploit revo- to reveal. Yes, exploits. and you know Mozilla is is a is a is a 
open source you know we, yeah. we you know please send us money you know crowdfunded you know great group but they can't afford to pay $50,000 per zero day vulnerability and the other thing this this does is remember that you know the the, the point is that that we know cuz actually from a lot of Brian Krebs great reporting in the past that zero day vulnerabilities <clears throat> affecting windows xp are going to be selling for a, a for a premium for a good price because they will be ways for people to get malware into this you know half a billion xp machines that are being used insecurely after you know after the the patches for those are no longer available where does the money that pwned own pays come from that's a lot of money it is <laughs> i know eight hundred fifty thousand. I mean, where are they getting that money yeah, you you have to wonder too. Um, uh, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, uh, they're like, like they don't know how many zero day remote code execution vulnerabilities are going to happen. So you know, yikes! Well, now they can pretty much assume they're giving away all the money. Yeah, <laughs> from now on, all the money. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So um, the other thing that was revealed during. This CanSec West conference, a paper was delivered by some neat iOS security researchers. They did a prior paper um, about iOS six, where you know they 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 they're really kernel hardening, kernel attack guys. And what made the headlines? And again, the headlines were overblown. I, I, it's funny. I was just reading. Uh, uh, Matt, Matt um, Matthew, Honan? I'm forgetting his last name. Honan? Not Honan, our security researcher in Chicago. Uh, uh, I'm drawing a blank. Last name begins with B, I think. Hmm. Uh, I can't get it. Anyway, um, uh, he was saying the same thing. I was, I was catching, I was, oh, I know, I was looking through his blog, looking for what Green. I hadn't been able. Green. Green. Oh, yeah, Green, right, Matt Green. Um, looking for th- thank you. Uh, thank looking you, chat through, room. Yeah. through his through his blog, um, uh, trying to find a reference to the TrueCrypt uh, first phase of audit stuff, but still haven't been able to find anything. So I don't know where that reference was. Um, and uh, he was saying the same thing that you know he he looks at the headlines of these of the stories covering anything to do with security. And they, I mean, the headlines. I guess you know they they're trying to draw eyeballs. They want they want to have links that draw clicks from users. So they're just over the top headlines, and that's been the case with this. There are where where they. I mean, which is not to say, and we're gonna we're about to describe it in detail, but so I don't want to minimize that this is bad. This is not good. What happened in iOS seven? But it's also not the end of the world. So um, the here's the deal. Um, we've talked mostly in the context of Windows back when Microsoft was finally getting serious about hardening Windows. This was when Vista was new and we were doing the podcast and we were talking about Many of the mitigations 
And this is the key word to understand that these are attack mitigations. For example, ASLR, address space layout randomization. The idea of that is that if you simply load the operating system, like just like at the bottom of memory to give you a sort of a good visual, you just sort of stack it, all the pieces, in, always in the same way, always in the same place, then if a hacker can somehow break through the security barrier between being in the user land or user mode and the kernel, then they get a huge boost from their knowledge of where everything is. For example, oftentimes an exploit doesn't give them much leeway. For example, they'll they, they can write a few bytes onto the stack, which when the routine returns, it executes those, but they only could like write seven or eight bytes. So that's enough to like to jump anywhere in the system. And so they find some code in the kernel that does what they want. It drops the like it it grants administrative privileges to the calling process. And so if they know where that code is and they can just somehow wangle a a jump to there, um, then suddenly they can get a privilege elevation and turn their their process that was in restricted privileges into full admin privileges, that kind of thing. So the point is that if in, if instead the operating system deliberately scrambles itself up while it's booting, it arranges to, to never put itself twice in the same order, then that's a, a tremendous mitigation against the attack, you know, against exploiting the attack. So you could, so I want to separate these two concepts because this is important um, just in general in terms of security theory, but, but for this conversation, the, the, vulner, the, the vulnerability is the ability to overrun the stack and write some data. But that then, then, you know, the question is, what can you do with that? So, so that's really the bug. Then the question is, how do you exploit it? And so mitigation is the second part. It's, obfuscating things and and doing whatever you can in terms of operating system architecture so that if something can gain a little foothold it isn't able to roll that into a big exploit so that's so that's the important thing so um contemporary operating systems do this because the architects recognize we're going to do everything we possibly can to not have any mistakes, to, to not have anything that, you know, would, uh, would give any unprivileged code access to the kernel. But if we fail in that, and for example, you know, <laughs> we just saw an example during the same security conference of failure in that. If we fail in that, 
We want to make it absolutely difficult for that mistake to get rolled into a, a you know something really big, a complete collapse of of the security model of the operating system or whatever. So, how do we do that? What iOS six had is a a number of these mitigations, uh, randomizing the logical to physical map. If you have a 64-bit processor, which now we do, um, you certainly don't have 64 bits worth of RAM. Nobody does. You know, that's that's 16 billion billion bytes of RAM. Um, you know, it's twice 32. 32 is, I'm sorry, it's it's 16 billion billion. Yeah, that's what I said. Twice 32. 32 bits gives you 4 billion. So, so we square that. Um, so... That means that you have this massive address space where you can sort of put yourself wherever you want to. So randomize where you sit within this incredibly large address space using what's called logical to physical map randomization. So that's one thing you can do. Then we've we've talked before, there are things you can do about the various... um, sorts of dynamic memory the stack is one where you you can put a cookie on the stack basically a random number and we did a whole podcast on this years ago where if code overruns it then like if something overruns the stack then it basically will overwrite a sentinel which you have written there so the idea is going into a function you put a little a canary, sometimes it's called, on the stack. And then on your way out of the function, before you, you use the stack, so-called popping the stack, you check to make sure that Sentinel is still there, which is to say nothing in your function or that your function called overwrote that. So that's another thing you can do. Um, and... Uh, and 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 there and there there there's more. There are ways to protect the heap and 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 allocate memory in zones and protect it. So the OS designers have been very clever about this. But anything that is known to the attacker, for example, if you always wrote the same canary pattern, the same cookie on the stack, then. The attacker can figure that out and they can arrange for their overwriting of the stack not to disturb that cookie or to like to overwrite and in that one spot put the same cookie. So you need randomness for all of this. You need randomness and you need what's called early randomness. That is eventually once the operating system gets going then you're going to start collecting entropy. You're, you, you've got your hard, your, you've got your hardware random number generator in the secure enclave. It's going to be spitting out noise from you know electrons to reverse tunneling through diode junctions. You know, cool quantum stuff. You know, you're going to have this huge machinery going. But but this is all before then. Yet even before then, you still need randomness because 
this is what attackers attackers will take advantage of a of a lack of randomness even there so apple has something they call the early random number generator they thought they were improving it when they went from ios 6's style to ios 7's and what's clear to me in looking at the analysis of it from this paper is no crypto person was Whoa. consulted. They were doing so and well. I know. I know. It must be they're big and the crypto people were like on the other side of the quad or something. I, I, I don't know how you explain this. This was, this was done by somebody with the best of intentions who had no cryptographic security training. He, they, whoever this was, used a, a brain-dead uh, pseudo-random number generator. And I've talked about them before. That's called a linear congruential pseudo-random number generator. It's what we used on the Apple II when we were shuffling the deck of cards. I mean, it's like it's the most god-awful thing. You, you take a number, you multiply it by another, by you multiply it by a constant, and you add a, a, another constant, and that gives you your next one. Oh, and you also allow it to overflow. So it's done mod whatever the size of the word is on the computer. So if you had a 32-bit machine, you, you, you just take a seed, and you multiply it by a constant, which is typically some prime, and you add maybe another prime to it, and that gives you your next one. And that probably is bigger than 32 bits, so you throw away the stuff that, that wrapped off. And so, and you just do that over and over and over. And it steps you through the address space. Good ones will visit all, for example, on a 32-bit machine, all two to the 32 states. I used to pride myself, because I use, I, in the old days, for, for things that were not cryptographically secure, I would use these to generate randomness. I once did a – I actually taught myself Windows with a cool screensaver uh, called Chromazone, and I needed randomness. And so I used one of these, you know, and, and I spent some time choosing those two constants, the multiplier and the add end, in order to come up with really good random numbers. I mean really good within this within this – definition of it just sort of looking like noise to get a random star pattern, for example, or, you know, random motion of something. But, I mean, nothing about this is cryptographically secure because, think about it, you basically, if you ever capture its state, if you ever capture that value, you and the, and the fix and the constant is fixed. The multiplier and the addend are fixed. They're in the code. You now know every future one it will ever produce it, forever. And it turns out it's not difficult to run it backwards. That's that we can do that too, which means we can run it backwards all the way to the original seed. So that that so if if it's possible to capture its state, you have all of the past and all of the future. Well, because these are known to not be very good and it wasn't 
for example, the low order bits are like useless. I mean, if you you they're, 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 they just form a very simple cyclic pattern, and so the developer of this threw them away. He knew not to use the least significant bits, but that meant he needed more than this generator's width was. I think he and and what he did was he used four. So he he he, he did it. Threw away the least significant bits, took the most significant bits, put them as like the first chunk. Then iterated it and did that again. Second chunk. Iterated it, did it again. Third chunk. Iterated again. Fourth chunk. There turns out that's even worse. Because now in a single snapshot, a single random number from this thing, you ha- he's giving you four states in a row. And turns out... With a simple analysis that eliminates all the uncertainty. So, and then it turns out, so remember, so we have that. The question is, what if this leaks something? Well, it turns out this, the, the, the early randomness leaks everywhere. It's, it's being used by the operating system. Just sort of get me a random number. Get me a random number. Whenever it thinks it needs a random number. And so it's not only in the logical to physical map randomization in the in the stack check canaries and cookies and 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 in the uh address space layout randomization of the kernel called k a s l r kernel address space layout randomization it's not only there it would it kind of be better if it was only there unfortunately they just spray the random numbers from this thing everywhere while they're starting up so that it's simple for code to get samples of that, determine what the random number was at some point in time, and then go backwards into time to the beginning, and then go forwards, recreating what the kernel was getting while it was getting it, and then essentially render all of its use of that random generator moot. Whoops. <laughs> So, uh, I'm, Apple was not happy, uh, and I'm sure there will be a 7.1.1 probably before long. Because well, are there is, exploits out there already? No, no. And so that's the point. Remember, we want to we want to differentiate. We want to we want to separate mitigation from exploit. So what this means is, if there is a problem which is found in 7.1 that is something exploitable then this dramatically hurts the operating system's mitigation of the damage that can be done mm. because now that everybody in the world knows mm. about this mm-hmm. then they 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 you know everyone will work out how to essentially de-randomize everything that the 7.1 kernel does while it's starting up so um, this is not good. And I, and I don't know if this actually was about 7.1. There's a chance that 7.1 already changed this. I don't know for sure. I think I saw 7.0.3 mentioned and some change to something, some reference to 0.06, which was, remember, the mysterious one that we suddenly got that fixed the SSL certificate problem where they weren't checking SSL certificates at all. 
anyway, so that's what that's all about. Um, it's, it doesn't itself represent a, a problem, but first of all, the fact that this, oh, the, 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 I, the other thing I, sh- I should mention that sort of creeped me out about the design was that they, some bits from the low order were shifted up and XORed to like scramble things more. And you just put your head in your hands. It's like, oh, goodness. You know, I mean, no security person would ever believe that has any effect at all. It's, I mean, just like none. That, 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 you know, no one who was doing crypto work would just be tripped up by that. So that's an, an inexperienced programmer who tried to do a good job and unfortunately came up with something really, really bad. Now, I don't know why they didn't muse the cool hardware. It may be that this is a bit of a problem of the secure enclave is it's busy booting up too while the main processor core is booting up. And so there just isn't access to random numbers then. I don't know what the interdependency is. Maybe they could boot the secure enclave first and then pick up really good entropy from it. That would be nice. You know, who knows? Um, But certainly Apple has the ability to change these things. This does not feel like it's boot ROM-ish because it's from iOS 6 to iOS 7. This got broken. iOS 6s had some problems, but they weren't nearly as bad as basically creating a purely deterministic you know, pseudo random number generator that is not very pseudo at all. So um, anyway, that's what that is about. Um, I did note just yesterday, and I guess this was news from um, late last week, Google changed the pricing on cloud storage. I created a shortcut uh, to, an, to a nice readwrite.com article, uh, bit.ly slash sn hyphen Google all lowercase, sn hyphen Google, uh, a bit.ly link, bit.ly, which sort of shows the lay of the land. And essentially the 15 gigs that anyone using Google Drive gets for free is still free, but they dropped the price of the 100 gig plan from $5 a month to two. So substantial drop there. And they dropped the price of the thousand gig plan. That is the one terabyte plan, which used to be $50 a month to 10. So you can get a Google, you can get, you can get a terabyte of Google drive storage now for 10 bucks a month. And, you know, the economics of this are, are clear because I just checked, I was curious, a, you know, a, a four terabyte Seagate desktop hard disk drive, SATA two or three, six gig per second, native command queuing, 64 megabyte cache, you know, it's state of the art, four terabyte drive, um, costs uh, 155 So that's about $40 per terabyte. So that says that if Google were using those, four months of subscription pays, uh, four months 
of the $10 per month subscription for a terabyte. No, wait a minute. I got that wrong. I didn't do my math right ahead of time. $55 was the drive for four terabytes. So one terabyte costs $40. Oh, yeah. So in four months of the one terabyte plan, you, um, yes, that's right. In in four months of the one terabyte plan, uh, they're at break even. And most people are going to do more than that. So um, then the question, of course, is what is everybody else, you know, all the other cloud storage providers going to do? And since the economics support it, I think this we're going to see a shakeup in the market and of pricing and everybody coming down. And it was this and the fact that we haven't revisited the topic for some time that led me to tweet and also right now to announce that we will be revisiting the topic of TNO cloud storage solutions with an updated cloud storage roundup. That was a, one of our very popular podcasts from a couple of years ago where I went through and looked at, I don't know, it was like 12 or 13 of the, of the cloud storage providers. And, you know, some of them got dinged pretty badly for their lack of security. Others did well. And, and I'm looking both at providers and at third-party solutions like like Boxcryptor and um, uh, uh, Tesserit and um, I'm trying to think of the guy who did uh, script. Uh, I'm blanking on it. Uh, anyway, but you know, so so the idea being that you can either use a a, a, um, a client in your machine, which I actually prefer, or maybe a turnkey package uh, from the from the remote provider. Um, Tarsnap, that's what I was trying to think of, Colin Percival's uh, solution, which is also very nice, and TNO. Um, and finally, Wired, uh, someone tweeted, uh, and I appreciated this, said, oh, look, the guy who at Wired has clearly been listening to the Security Now podcast. Uh, Wired had an article uh, just out, which was uh, under wish list, um, this is Kim Zetter's piece, which was uh, titled A 10-Point Plan to Keep the NSA Out of Your Data. First point, end-to-end encryption. So, yep, that's, you know, we're completely on track there. Number two, bake user-friendly encryption into products from the get-go. Exactly right. We, this is not something the end user has to worry about. It's very much like we need to move websites from from non SSL to SSL, simple thing to do. Um, the browsers are ready, the servers are ready. People just have to buy certificates and switch their users over, and then you can be in an open Wi-Fi hotspot, and your data at the website won't all be completely sniffable, which otherwise it absolutely is. Um, number three, as a matter of fact, make all websites SSL and slash TLS. And it's interesting too. Um, uh, the uh, Diffuse Security guy, uh, Taylor Hornby, uh, who we know as Fire Xware, and we've spoken of on the podcast from time to time, had an interesting piece. Um, he put it up, I think, maybe last week, where he was proposing that it's time for browsers to make it a little more clear when a site is not secure. That is, they they do indicate with the lock or the key 
um, or in the case of EV certificates, you know, greenness, they clearly indicate, they go out of their way to indicate when a site is providing you with security, but they t- they're very low-key about not being. And, and Taylor proposed, and I think I like the idea, like show a red broken lock to just say uh, this is not secure to convey to the typical user, be careful here. Um, you know, the, I guess the, the counter argument would be that that would that makes it look like something is proactively broken. And, you know, from the standpoint of someone who believes you really should have secure communications, you could argue that something is proactively broken or at least at least broken. Um, but it was I thought that was an interesting idea. Um, number four, enable HTTP strict transport security. And of course, we've talked about that. That's a feature where the web server can declare itself to be always accessible over SSL, which the web browser will cache so that the if the user inadvertently puts in non-S on HTTP or clicks a link in email that's non-S or in any way suggests to the browser that they go to this site not over SSL, the browser's cached memory of the of that site's prior statement using HTTS, HTTP strict transport security, allows the browser the permission to autonomously upgrade those connections so that so that any attempt to connect to the website gets upgraded to SSL, which uh, thwarts another whole class of attacks that we've spoken of over the years. Um, number five, encrypt data center links. Google knows the importance of that now um, from, you know, the NSA spying on, on their, their backbone, essentially. Six, use perfect forward secrecy. That's the, that's the idea that you are always generating new keys for your conversations rather than always using the same key, which, um, and it, it's funny too, because the term is perfect, perfect forward secrecy, but it actually refers to the secrets from the past. That is, perfect forward secrecy means you negotiate a new key so that if anyone got a hold of your current key, they could not decrypt previous conversations. Of course, there aren't any there aren't yet any future conversations, uh, but if they had that key and you didn't change it, they could certainly go ahead and decrypt those as they occurred. Um, but yes, we always want to be negotiating uh, ephemeral keys, generating keys per conversation. And you know all of the good uh, TNO end-to-end encryption, for example, chat clients, just do that as a matter of course. They... They, they establish the identity of each other to get authentication, and that allows them to securely negotiate a key which cannot be intercepted by the man in the middle because that man in the middle cannot authenticate themselves as, as, the, uh, as either end. You need authentication in order for a man in the middle to make any sense. I mean, pr- pr- protection against man in the middle to make any sense. Also, seven, secure software downloads. You know, always download software over SSL um, authenticated with the website's name, never not, because otherwise you just don't know what you're getting. Um, eight is a good one too. 
We don't talk about this enough, I think. Reduce storage and logging time. I've mentioned this in years past. The notion that that the you know that we should expire the content of databases. So rather than them just living on for decades and decades, it's difficult for a, for a company to demonstrate a a valid business purpose for you know really old information. And people should just know that anything really old is just sort of the internet forgets about it rather than right now the internet holds onto it fanatically because, you know, it might have some, you know, de minimis value. Um, so, you know, we really should reduce that. Number nine, replace Flash with HTML5. Amen. Long overdue because Flash, you know, even last week at CanSec West, again, you know, more source of exploits and and problems. And I really like number 10, and you will too, Leo, fund a global account to support community audits of open source code. Because of course, as we've said, open source code demonstrates the goodwill of the people coding it, that they are, they're explicitly saying we have nothing to hide. But the fact that it's open doesn't mean that it's secure. You know, Apple's famous um, mistake, the the go-to fail, it was sitting there in an open source repository for quite a while and didn't help anybody. But if the code were audited, I mean, somebody was looking at it, asking, you know, line by line, what does this do? What does this do? Does this make sense? It would have been spotted. And so you know, I'm really glad that, that TrueCrypt is being audited now. So we will we will know about it. But, you know, the notion of there being a, a formal code auditing system of some sort um, that is funded uh, really makes, I, I think, a lot of sense. Yeah, and none of these other proposals make sense unless you do that, since most of it would be done with open source. Um, you couldn't, you know, for instance, even item one, end-to-end encryption or bake user-friendly encryption into products, if you can't validate that... You know, why would I accept a third-party vendor's encryption scheme if I right. can't validate it? Right, it doesn't do it's anything. One of the nicest, it's one of the nicest things that that um, that uh, Joe Segrist at LastPass did when when I was you know doing my vetting of it was that he was able to prove what he was claiming by creating a test site where you could do these things and the web page showed you that it was working and it was very simple JavaScript that anyone could take a look at. So, you know, that, that those kinds of steps go a long way towards, towards validating the, 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 the security, which, you know, the document uh, says is present. Yeah, I don't think any um, of this is going to happen, but I think it's all a great idea. <laughs> Well, well we're, who knows? We're, we're moving. We're moving forward. We're. De- I mean, like many people are using text secure and Threema because they want secure end-to-end encryption. You know, my site and other sites are using HTTPS secure transport security. You know, you know, it's it's. Unfortunately, we just don't throw a switch and make it happen. But we're we're definitely going there. Yeah, uh, we've had a great reaction. Very very. I'm so pleased. Uh, about the reaction to the Squirrel translation project. Last week when I mentioned it on the podcast, we were we had 34 translated languages and 80 volunteer translators. Today, this morning when I looked to put the notes together, 
we were at 48 languages because so many people wrote and said, hey, I speak Swahili. I speak, uh, I mean, you know, name your language. And I would like to do a translation. You know, 12 people, uh, no, 14 people, uh, or four, 14 people asked for additional languages which they speak and would be willing to translate from English. So we went from 34 to 48. And boy, we got the bases covered now. And we've jumped up from 80 to 213 volunteer translators are logged in. So that's really great, too, because we really need where we can get it. More than one person claiming that this is a translation into Hindi, which, by the way, is one that was added last week. I, I don't speak it, and I have no way to verify it. I mean, I am going to trust people, and if there are any problems with the translations, for example, someone said, well, this is not, this is not saying what you think it says, Steve. I'll immediately pull it. But it would be, it's, it's great to use the, 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 a, essentially a community effect to allow multiple people to be all uh, interacting and agreeing on a single translation. So having more people willing to, to vet translations, and I imagine once they actually exist, I'll be able to get some people to say, hey, you know, I'll be able to say, hey, we really need some for Italian. Uh, we, if there are any English and Italian speakers, please check this to make, just read it over to make sure that it makes sense. So anyway, to everybody, I really want to say thank you. It's, it's going to, it's going to make a big difference. I, meanwhile, I'm cranking away on code. I've got the, the app is open and started and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm having to do this, the so-called Unicode or wide care as Windows calls it programming for the first time where the user interface, all of the UI needs to be you know, representable and displayable in 48 different languages. So that's not something I have ever had to do before. So it's taking me a little bit of time to build a new foundation of tools to, to work with that. But that's what I'm in the process of doing. Um, I did want to take a moment to talk about the logo for Squirrel. Um, I purchased com full unrestricted commercial rights to that logo that I'm using, I call him the mascot, that, that, that smiling little squirrel head. You, anyone can see it if you go to, if you look at the UI pages on GRC, I've got his little face on all of the UI. Um, or the squirrel, uh, the, the crowdin.net, C-R-O-W-D-I-N.net slash, I think it's page six, Leo is the, if, when you go to the squirrel page, yeah, crowdin.net slash project slash squirrel, S-Q-R-L, then, then, then you'll see the little guy. Um, the, and, and I'm happy with it. I'm, I mean, I'm not in love with it. It didn't cost me very much. So if anyone I wants to come up with chipmunk. Well, okay. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm teasing you. <laughs> I don't know if there's a difference. It might be. Anyway, I'm, my feeling is it's, friendly this is not you know techie i didn't want to like blur in a bitmap or anything oh, I, I mean like you know nice. the world the world is going to use this the problem is when i reduce it to 16 oh and here's our our trash pickup right happening. on time yeah. when, when, we're right on time when, when i reduce it to 16 by 16 yeah. it's it, it creates a blurry icon and so I've, I've got now our little squirrel friend sitting in the tray of windows because, I, as I said, I have code. It, like I've, so, something's running now. 
And it just, you know, if you know what it is, okay, that's my lots. That's our little squirrel. If you don't know what it is, it looks kind of like a little brown blob. <laughs> so if so, I imagine within the sound of my voice that we have people with some artistic talent. And so if you could, if you took the image, um, for example, from the crowdin.net translate page, you can also get to it just by saying translate.grc.com. Although, as I said, I'm going to be replacing that. I just haven't, I've been focused completely on, on getting the code written. But translate.grc.com will immediately take you to that page. If we, if I would love to have hand rendered rather than algorithmically reduced uh, 32 by 32 and 16 by 16 icons for that little guy uh, that would be really tremendous so if anyone is is so is interested in doing that I that would be that would be great sure you can find somebody and a podcast follower a frequent tweeter and friend of the podcast Christian Alexandrov we've uh we visited him a few times, and you'll remember, Leah, in Sofia City, Bulgaria. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the guy with the dentist whose computers are breaking all the time. Yeah, um, that's right. In, in this case, <laughs> he sent on March 16th, so what's that, two days ago, he said, after my hard drive failed on me more than a year ago, so this was probably early in his experience, I used Spinrite to bring it back to the world of the living. After that, I started running Spinrite regularly, once every month, on level four. Now my hard drive is stronger than ever, and Spinrite helped my drive to locate and put its weak sectors out of use, leaving only strong sectors in use, which is true. My hard drive, he writes, is stronger and healthier than it was when it was new, Running Spinrite regularly keeps my drive in good shape. No hard drive problems ever since. And it's funny because th- this was in, my, in the mailbag. And in thinking about it, it, it is difficult for me to understand if you ran Spinrite for maintenance periodically, how you can have a hard drive problem. Spinrite is going to find the problem before it can manifest as a, a, a problem with readability because Spinrite can perform so much recovery on sectors which are beginning to get weak and and if you run it often you just you can't have a problem and i recognize that for spinrite 6 it it sort of works against people who want to run it often because it is not running as fast as version 6.1 will and as everyone knows Everyone gets 6.1 as soon as I get back to it when once Squirrel was put to bed, uh, which will, among other things, be way faster. Yet, you know, 10 years of Spinrite 6 is in the world and, uh, and people are using it uh, periodically. So it absolutely does keep your drive from dying. And I appreciate Christian reminding us. And we thank the NSA for removing all of Steve's information in a timely fashion. We're going <laughs> to take a break when we come back. Part 2 of your iOS analysis uh, of the security in iOS. You know, I'm wondering, because there is a little teeny weeny teeny little issue with iOS security using that old, you know, broken, uh, NSA broken uh, algorithm. I'm wondering if that's the Uh, same guy that approved the uh, random number generator for iOS 7.1. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Maybe that's the same guy. 
Our show today brought to you by ShareFile. I just used ShareFile last night. I use it all the time because I have to send files a lot, attachments. In fact, it's probably the case that uh, many, if not all, business emails or most uh, have attachments of some kind, a spreadsheet, a document of some kind, a PowerPoint presentation, sometimes very large uh, files. And if you're sending files as an email attachment and you're listening to this show, I have to say, what? <laughs> you, you know, that's dangerous. It's, it's wrong for so many reasons. First of all, email attachments are still a big vector for a malware. It's not safe to do it. I've said, told people again and again, don't open attachments. That makes it a little difficult. In fact, people always respond to me, well, what do I have? how do I do business? Uh, we also know that anything sent over the uh, Internet is uh, uh, open to prying eyes of all sorts, government and otherwise. It's, it, you know, it goes through many, many servers. And finally, the size of these files could actually Im impediment their delivery. You know, there are still mail systems that will not accept anything over 10 megabytes, for instance. Lots of them. ShareFile solves all these problems. It doesn't send email attachments. Instead, it sends in a secure link to the file stored on the ShareFile servers. Now, the nice thing about ShareFile is it's got a synchronization program. So uh, here, what I use, I'll give you my example, what I use it for. Um, I record audio for radio stations for the radio show, you know, bumpers and ads and so forth. i got to get it to these guys. Now, a lot of times, nothing wrong with, with the guys who do uh, audio at radio stations, the production, but they're not techno-literate necessarily. They're not necessarily geeks. Uh, we used, a, you know, we have used a variety of different solutions to do this, but it's always caused little problems here and there. For instance, them just deleting the file after they downloaded it, even though it has to go to 10 other stations. Share files really solved that problem. I record the file. I save it to uh, the share file folders. I have a couple on my desktop. Um, it's automatically synchronized by the share file client. They have a Windows and a Mac client. Uh, up to uh, the ShareFile servers, so I don't have to think about it. These f these files are already automatically transferred uh, right up there. Now they're on my ShareFile account. I can log into ShareFile using the ShareFile apps on my smartphone or tablet, or just using uh, you know the website on the desktop. See the files and send them. So I'll show you what it looks like. I I'll uh, go to log into my uh, ShareFile account. One of the things I like about it, by the way, is branded with your logo, your company's logo, customized for a variety of uh, different uh, businesses, so you're always going to get something that's uh, that's usable. Here's, as an example, these are voice tracks that I send out to uh, radio stations. You can see right here. Let's say I've got to send a voice track out to WFIR. I'll, uh, I, could, I could click send. I could just kind of send it out as an email, but I like to get the link here. You'll see that we've got some great parameters. I can say email me when the file's been downloaded. I usually do that. But you can also require recipients to enter their name and email before downloading. You can say when the download access expires, anything from never to one day. Uh, you can say how many times they can download it. Unlimited, one, two, three, four. Um, then when you click the send file button, you're going to get a unique link. Uh, that link, I'm going to copy that to the clipboard and paste it. You'll see what happens in the email when they get it. Uh, brings them to a page. It's very simple. With my company logo on it, a big thing that says download, the file itself, and it tells them what kind of file it is. They can even preview the file for many file formats. And then a simple download button. There is, I've yet to found a radio station production director who can't figure this one out. And I know when they download it. 
I can have it sent out automatically. I can even give them permission to access the folder anytime, and that's what I often do. It's just a great service. I want you to try ShareFile right now. We've got a 30-day free trial for you. In many businesses, there are privacy regulations, government regulations that require you take extra caution, extra care with files that you send. The email is not considered adequate. You know, HIPAA is just one of these, the medical requirements. This is HIPAA compliant, compliant with the regulations in many industries. Try it free for 30 days. And if you're not the person who decides this in your company, share this with your CIO or your IT guy because it's very affordable, very effective, and free for 30 days. When you visit sharefile.com, click the microphone at the top that says podcast listeners. Click here. Click that one. And enter our offer code. One word, security now. 30 days free. Sharefile.com. Security now. HTTPS encryption, of course, during transit and all of that. It's secure. It's fast. It's easy. It's Sharefile. Use the offer code security now and try it today. We continue on with security now, Mr. Steve Tiberius Gibson. And the garbage okay. trucks have moved on. Good timing. They have. Perfect. Um, so, as we said last week, um, the challenge which Apple has taken on and accepted is, is that of creating a something which has really never existed before, a large and powerful and flexible digital ecosystem which is what iOS is for a computer um you know we've got you know all the other systems are are open and while apple of course famously gets some criticism for the fact that they're closed it is that closure which is the only thing that prevents bad guys from Installing malware on on iOS devices, and as I, as I said, you have to know. We do know that there is tremendous pressure to to get to take over people's iPhones. I mean that there, there's a massive install base of iPhones. They're a huge juicy target. So if it were possible to to get people to, to to get people to somehow hurt themselves, the bad guys would be doing that. So the the only way not to have that be possible is to create a closed system where you have an app store like iTunes, which is curated, where to their best of their ability, Apple looks at the applications verifies that they are from known developers, which is one of the things that I I don't think I explicitly mentioned. But part of this notion that we were talking about how the kernel gets going and the kernel has to be signed, the same is true for apps. So every single app which is submitted is signed by a certificate which Apple issues a developer. So Apple has an identity for every single developer who is producing apps which have a chance of appearing in the the iTunes store so you know it is a it is a a closely controlled system and what we learn 
mostly by experience. And, you know, we're now at major version seven. We were just talking about a mistake that Apple made for the startup of the kernel, which hurts the strength of their of their exploit mitigation during boot time, which I imagine they will get fixed quickly. So, you know, it, it's a it's a matter of iterating and continuing to to improve the integrity of this this soup to nuts lockdown of the system. So um what I what I learned in reading this paper that we began discussing last week is that you don't achieve that without a virtually obsessive focus and secure and concern for security. As we've often said, a secure system is a series of links of different components, and the system is only secure as the weakest link. So all it takes is one mistake anywhere in this interlocking chain from the time the power turns on and the code in the ROM begins to run and get itself going and then reach out into the file system and load the kernel and verify its signature and go from there. This is all interlocked and each step protects all of the following steps. So it, it takes, it takes um, I think, hardware support. I don't think you can do this without hardware support of the right kind, which, they, which we really now have in, in, the, in the iPhone 5 technology with the, with the secure enclave technology. I guess that's only 5S. Um, and a, a good source of random numbers. We just saw that the, there's still a problem with boot time randomness, the need for it in order to, to thwart the, the, the amount of damage that bad guys are going to be able to do if they do find a vulnerability somewhere. Um, Apple's going to have to come up with a better source of boot time randomness than, than iOS 7.1 has. Um, but we do know that once they get going, we've got the secure enclave producing really good, high quality, not pseudo random numbers, but true random numbers from quantum properties happening at the chip level. So the thing I like about what I've seen is, and, and I, we'll, we'll see some more examples of that in a second, is this, is Apple's design is absolutely user-centric. I, I saw at every step of the way, it was a concern for the user's security and privacy. You know, Apple needs what they need in terms of not having their software stolen. So that's one thing this does is it protects Apple as well as it protects the user. But they've really gone above and beyond in in protecting the user. Um, there, you know, the the crypto where it exists is unobtrusive people don't know it happens I, I saw a tweet from someone listening to last week's podcast who said just like just holding his iphone now he felt better i mean he felt good like it was a little crypto vault i mean i mean it is it's, it's an incredible piece of technology that we that we just easily take for granted because it's like oh yeah look it works and uh bad guys can't get in but oh my goodness what it takes to make that true um and, and the architecture 
throughout really evidences a total respect for the user's privacy and security. Apple doesn't receive any, any piece of information that isn't truly necessary for the delivery of the service they are delivering. There, and as we'll, we'll cover in a second when we talk about iMessage, we're, we're going to get to that now, um, that there are some things they're doing which are arguably not secure, but it's, again, it's, They've made the ease of use versus security trade-off favoring ease of use. Um, but I've seen nothing gratuitous. Nowhere are they are they just sending some stuff off because, well, it would be nice to have that. Um, the machine has a unique identity that is fused in at manufacturing time in the secure enclave by the secure enclave, and no one knows what it is. Apple doesn't know what it is. You can't ask it what it is. All that you can get is the effect of that key by asking it to encrypt and decrypt and sign things for you. It's just, it's, it's really a beautiful piece of work. So we cover the secure boot chain last week where everything is digitally signed all the way from boot outward. We looked at secure update security, the idea that devices request a an update package with their own ID as part of the request and that the request is signed by Apple with that ID embedded and only and the device will only install it will only accept it as an update if it's got its ID in it and if Apple assigned it and that prevents downgrade attacks that prevents any any older version from some other device, for example, being installed in a newer device and then and, and then winding back its security, making it vulnerable to things which Apple has already fixed. And, of course, we talked about the Secure Enclave, which is a completely separate, logically separate coprocessor. It's on the same silicon chip as the A7 application processor, yet the only communication they have is they have they're able to to share buffers and sort of give each other the heads up that there's something that the other needs to take a look at in one of the buffers so a so-called you know semaphore communication you using uh basically sort of mailboxes to send things back and forth so we know that we have hardware enforced protection um throughout this thing we've got the secure enclave the unique ID that never leaves the device. Um, and the, the, the other thing nice is that all of the iOS data that exists in memory is cryptographically tied to a particular device's ID inside the secure enclave. So even if the keys were divulged, only that device can use them. Apple gives the example that because the the key hierarchy that when we will be talking about the file system key hierarchy in a second, because the, the this file system key hierarchy is protected by a key in the secure enclave, which is wrapped, as Apple uses the term, which it just says it's just encrypted. Essentially, the 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 key for decrypting the key hierarchy, I'm sorry, the, 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 the file system hierarchy is encrypted 
um, using this unique ID, even if the memory chips were physically removed and put into a different device, nothing would work. So the memory chips and the processor, if you were going to do something, you, you can't just take the memory out. You got the processor is the only thing that knows ever knows how to decrypt what's stored in the memory, and the memory is never written unencrypted. It is. It is. Remember, it's got that AES two fifty six DMA encryption engine sitting there, right in the connection between the processor and the. And, and, and the memory. So everything is encrypted and decrypted on the fly as it passes uh, back and forth. And then apart from this unique ID, there's actually two. There's something called the UID and one called the GID, which is the, the group encryption key, which is Apple's document says common to all devices of the same generation. Um, other than those two, there's the unique ID, the unique device key and the group ID key. All other cryptographic keys are created by the system's random number generator, this, the good hardware random number generator in the secure enclave. Um, it's seeded uh, th- uh, that the hardware random number generator seeds an algorithm based on the counter DRBG algorithm, which is a an NIST standard known strong uh, pseudo-random number generator seeded with a true random number generator to generate good entropy. This is done because sometimes there's a, a greater need for for randomness, for entropy, than the hardware can generate. Hardware entropy generators normally have some sometimes, you know, way less than light speed rate at which they're able to produce entropy. You know, the, these little electrons are only pseudo-random or all, all only, I'm used, so used to saying pseudo, only truly randomly crossing this diode junction at a certain rate. And so that's being sampled at a certain rate. And then there's some other stages that, that a hardware and a number generator goes through in order to to balance it because typically the hardware itself will have some bias. It'll be producing a lot more ones and zeros, even though they're random, they're not exactly equal. So there's a whitening process and various sort of post-processing that happens before you finally get true random numbers out the other end. But you, it could be that your software desperately needs them faster than the hardware can produce them. So it is completely acceptable to use the hardware to produce the seed for a very good cryptographic quality pseudo-random number generator. And that's, you know, CSPRNG, cryptographically secure pseudo-random number generator. And then what you typically do is there's some limit to how much data you can take out of it before the cryptographers start worrying that if somebody looked at all of that, they might be able to start guessing what was coming or what had happened previously. So the idea is you only can take so much before then you reseed. And so the 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 cryptographically strong pseudo-random number generators are, will produce volumes of 
of cryptographically secure numbers. And then normally they're being constantly reseeded as the hardware has generated enough new true randomness that it's able to say, okay, here's, you know, start over. And that, that way, at no point are you producing too much randomness um, from, a, from a purely software um, algorithm that is inherently deterministic. You just want to make the sample that is used between seedings uh, small enough that no one analyzing it can figure out what the determinism, you know, pattern is for its generation. So what about device locking and unlocking? Um, on devices with the latest, the A7 processor, the secure enclave holds um, what they call cryptographic class keys for data protection. And Apple, as we'll co come to when we talk about the file system, has four different classes of keys, um, which are chosen uh, to protect files based on the way the file will be used. For example, some files need to be used while the device is locked. If you were downloading something um, uh, and locked the phone or your, your pad, um, iOS will still be able to write to that file so you can do downloading in the background. There are applications where it makes sense to to have things survive locking and others where it absolutely doesn't. So there, and there are some, some flavors of that too. So Apple divides these up into protection classes. So um, on, as I was saying with, on an A7 based processor, the secure enclave holds the cryptographic, cryptographic class keys for data protection. When a device locks the keys for data protection class complete, that's one of the classes. They call it the complete class. So when you lock the device, the keys are discarded. They're, they're overwritten and discarded. And files and keychain items in that class that, that, is, that, were, that were encrypted under the complete class instantly become inaccessible until the user unlocks the device by entering their passcode. So, so this is cool because what this is saying is that, is that the, the keys are always kept encrypted. And, and the unlocking process provides the information for decrypting them, but, but RAM holds the decrypted key and the encrypted key just stays there sort of as your backup. That's your non-running copy. So if you lose RAM, you lose your only copy of the, of the, of the decrypted key for that class. And locking the device immediately wipes the RAM and so everything protected um, under the complete class becomes unreadable. The, the, the keys are gone. There's no way to read it. Um, and then here it, it, Apple explains, until the user unlocks the device by entering their passcode. Well, we're going to come to that in a second because this is interesting because it 
turns out it really does matter how good your passcode is. Um, however, there's a caveat to this lock and, and delete. On iPhone 5S with Touch ID turned on, the keys are not discarded when the device locks. Instead, the keys are encrypted with a key that is given to the Touch ID subsystem. So when a user attempts to unlock the device, if Touch ID recognizes the user's fingerprint, it provides the key for unwrapping the data protection keys and the device is unlocked. So um, Apple explains this, device, this process provides additional protection by requiring the data protection and the Touch ID subsystems to cooperate in order to unlock. And we talked about how Touch ID and the Secure Enclave end up having a, a, a on-the-fly negotiated key which allows them to exchange, to securely exchange data through the A7 processor, even though it's unable to read it. Um, but the, so, so the point is, the the decrypted keys will get encrypted if you're using touch id and only the touch id recognizing your fingerprint is able to decrypt them and so that's a caveat to them otherwise being discarded when you lock the device um then apple explains that the decrypted class keys are only held in memory in ram so they're lost if the device is rebooted. Um, and you'll notice something. This is an example of the security working sort of behind the scenes. Those of us who have, have rebooted our iOS devices uh, or our iPhone 5s, for example, who have Touch ID will notice that we can't use Touch ID after a reboot. And it's not that Apple doesn't want us to. It's that RAM only holds the encrypted value under Touch ID, which Touch ID is able to decrypt. But if we reboot, we lose RAM. So, you for again, for the integrity of the security of the system, Touch ID cannot be used after a reboot. You have to first, once, put in your passcode in order to decrypt the statically encrypted keys into RAM, then when you lock the device, Touch ID can encrypt those pending a subsequent unlock. So again, it's, I mean, it, this has been well thought out and is really bolted down. And I didn't realize something also, maybe it's in, in the user specs or people know about this, but the decrypted class keys, which are kept only in memory, which are lost if the device is rebooted, but all additionally, the secure enclave will discard the keys after 48 hours or five failed touch ID recognition attempts. Now, we know about, uh, about the five failed touch ID recognition attempts. That is, you try it five times, then you have to enter in your passcode. It turns out, again, it's not like saying, oh, we want you to enter in your passcode because you missed it five times, it's you have no choice 
because we don't know what the keys are. I mean, Apple, they're not in the phone. They're encrypted in the phone. Only Touch ID is able to decrypt them. And if you can't make it happy, nothing is happy, and you've got to enter your passcode. Um, and, and Leo, were you aware that there was a two-day limit? If you didn't use your phone within two days, then Touch ID would no longer work? No. No, it works. Uh, it's the same thing on a reboot. If you haven't used it a certain amount of time or you reboot it, the first time you use it, you have to enter in the code. Correct. Yes. Yeah. That's, yeah, yeah that's, yeah. Okay. And, and now we understand why it is, it is security. It's Apple saying, okay, 48 yeah. hours, that seems a little suspicious. Most people are going to be using their phone, you know, daily. And so, you know, it's a, it's a nice trade-off. If the phone were ever not used for some reason for two days, then you got to go back to ground zero. Yeah. You, you can't use Touch ID. Or if you turn the phone off or if it crashes. Uh, well, and, and exactly, all because it loses RAM and right. the decrypted keys are only, they only exist in RAM. So, so this actually, there's, I, I made a note here as I was reading this because this gives a user a bit of a clue about how to increase their own security. If you wanted the most security, um, then, then rebooting your phone flushes those RAM-based encrypted keys out so that Touch ID, even if someone fooled Touch ID, they could not crack into your phone. But it also, it turns out that Apple actively uses your, your passcode as part of the decryption of the master key. So the quality of your passcode really does matter. Uh, it, it has to be a high-quality passcode. So you shouldn't um, use a four-digit uh, passcode then? Well, it would be better not to. Now, again, if, if you're using a, an iPhone 5S with a secure enclave, you've got hardware protection. So it's able, and, and there's no way to brute force that. Apple does slow down the processing using an, an iterative key lengthener or strengthener. So, so that prevents guessing. Um, but it turns out if you ask for a complex passcode, you know how it gives you the, the full alphanumeric keyboard? It turns out if you only use numbers to create a longer numeric only password next time apple prompts you it only it gives you the 10 keypad so it doesn't give you the whole big keyboard again so it's sort of a, another sort of nice compromise you might want to use a numbers only passcode um but not be like forced to use the 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 normal alphanumeric keyboard and so apple recognizes on you know on input and they have no way of knowing it afterwards because they've hashed it like crazy, and they, so they have no idea what the password. But while you're inputting it, if you only touch on numbers, when when Apple then prompts you, they will they set a flag saying give them the the numeric keypad, and it's just much faster to enter in a longer numeric only um, uh, passcode. Yeah, and given that. I mean, I understand a four-digit passcode isn't very safe, but given that you can, and I would suggest people do, turn on the thing that after 10 tries, it re resets the machine and erases everything. I yes. think that's sufficient. If you can only do it 10 we, now, times, I mean... 
Now we know it doesn't set a flag after 10 times. It, 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 I mean, all it has to do is scrub the keys that it has in RAM. The only way it's able to, to, to operate is, is because it has those keys that it has, that it has not forgotten. And when it, when it loses those keys from, when the secure enclave scrubs those keys, it's over. Nothing can decrypt the contents of your RAM. That that I am absolutely sure about. They said of passcodes, they said um, by setting a device passcode, the user automatically enables data protection. iOS supports four-digit and arbitrary length alphanumeric passcodes. In addition to unlocking the device, a passcode provides the entropy for encryption keys which are not stored on the device. This means an attacker in possession of a device cannot get access to data in certain protection classes without the passcode. So it's not like the passcode is checked against something and then a key is released. The key is synthesized from the passcode. It's tangled so, with the... Uh... With yes. the on-chip ID. It's tangled. <laughs> yeah. So that's an important distinction. I, I, it's not erasing any data. By just forgetting the key, the data is effectively erased because it's uh, effectively encrypted. Yes, it is always encrypted. Same in, way, in, same way in you storage. wipe a, an encrypted hard drive. You don't need to wipe it. Correct. <laughs> you just delete the keys. Correct. And it can't be so data. data. Data data protection classes, I mentioned before, that all files, when, when a new file is created on an iOS device. It's assigned one of these four classes um, and a random number is chosen to encrypt that file. So we have per file 256-bit AES keys chosen at random, which is added to the file's metadata. Metadata, of course, is like, you know, file name and date written and created and so forth. So that that key is is in the metadata. That's protected. That's what I was talking about when I said talked about the file system key that encrypts all the metadata. So without that, nothing in the file system is visible. The, the hierarchy, the, the the names of the files and and the keys to access the files, um, w- which are individually encrypted with randomly chosen keys. I mean, it's just, it's a beautiful hierarchy of, of interlocking encryption. So the, the one class I already talked about, pro- the complete protection, uh, is, um, is, the, is the class where the key is wiped when you lock the machine. So if something is, it has complete protection when the device is locked. The 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 key is lost, is is scrubbed from memory, and it doesn't exist anywhere in the device. So the all of your memory is immediately protected. Then they have one called protected and less open. Apple explains that some files may need to be written while the device is locked. For example, a mail attachment downloading in the background, the example I, that I cited before. This is achieved using asymmetric elliptic curve crypto, using ECDH, elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman, over the same curve I chose for squirrel. This is another one, one of those odd, you know, yes, 
the, the people who really are focusing on security are choosing the same solutions. The, uh, over curve 25519, uh, um, along with the usual per file key, data protection generates um, this, this uh, a per file public private key pair, which 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 allows Apple to to hold the file open even when the other keys are are scrubbed in order for for background work to be possible. And as soon as the file is closed, that per file key is also wiped from memory. Um, then they have an, uh, the third class is protected until they call it protected until first use authentication. This, they, they explain this class behaves in the same way as complete protection, except that the decrypted class key is not removed from memory when the device is locked. The protection in this class has similar properties to desktop full disk encryption and protects data from attacks that involve a reboot. This is the default class for all third-party app data not otherwise assigned to a data protection class. So they're saying protected until first user authentication means that that un- unless you restart the device that is remember that restarting or as you as, as you said Leo if it crashes and you have to reboot anything that wipes ram takes this away but there there are apps that do want access to their data while locked in order to do background things. So they would say, they would explicitly say, don't give me p- complete protection because for these things, because I need to access these even when the device is locked. But, but even so, if the, if a reboot occurs, this key gets wiped. And of course, because you don't, you no longer have things running in the background after a reboot until you've unlocked and restarted. So again, this is why I say if you really want, if you're going to like store your device for a while, your iOS device, that's one of the things that I learned from sort of seeing how this architecture works. Doing the turn off, turning it off explicitly, powering it down, that really puts you into like the ground state for for iOS uh, protection. And the last class, the fourth, is no protection. And they say this class key is protected only with the unique device ID and is kept in their e- effaceable storage, as they call it, which they're securely able to wipe, even though it is a, a non-volatile NAND technology. Since all the keys needed to decrypt files in this class are stored on the device, the encryption only affords the benefit of fast remote wipe. So no protection means the files are always available, but only because there is a, a, a non-volatile key that is kept in the secure enclave. If that is ever lost, which is what the secure wipe does, then pow, you know, the no protection file class is gone. And that's, for example, what the file system uses so that you can instantaneously wipe the file system and that file system contains all the keys for the files. So if you wipe the file system decryption, you have like a a nice chaining cascade that that means that everything downstream of that is unavailable also. 
On the side of app security, I mentioned that only known registered developers with with that have been vetted by Apple that have credentials receive certificates that allow them to sign their code to cryptographically state this is from them. That's submitted to Apple. Apple verifies their signatures um, and then signs it themselves so that the their devices will accept it. So you again, we have a nice chain of 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 um, uh, security based on a root certificate and then uh, a ch- a children from that. Uh, apps are inherently sandboxed without any access to other app resources unless that's originally arranged for by each end. The apps are assigned a randomly named file system directory. It's a bizarre looking thing. Have you ever seen like the, the name of a, an iOS file system uh, uh, entry? It's just gibberish. And so again, that's a further strengthening so that bad guys don't have any known um, points in the, in the file system tree that they're able to access. Address space layout randomization is enabled for all Xcode produced code, which is the developer tools that Apple makes available for creating iOS apps. So the apps themselves are, are scrambling their bits so that they're taking advantage of address space layout randomization not being in the same place all the time. Um, and iOS takes advantages, advantages of, the, of the ARMS processor execute never feature, which is a bit which restricts where code is able to execute. In other words, the, the, the stack is non-executable. The heap where memory is allocated is non-executable. Data segments are non-executable. And that goes a long way toward preventing code from you know, doing all the games it used to be able to play before, we were, before the hardware was enforcing the, a refusal to allow the processor to execute instructions which were meant to be data. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Because it was, it was about a year ago, and I'm looking at this uh, article on CNET by Declan McCullough, that uh, documents leaked out that Apple had a waiting list to decrypt iPhones. And the, the presumption was, um, while law enforcement can't examine the contents of an iPhone, Apple has the capabilities and, in fact, has a waiting list. Uh, of requests which they service yeah what you're describing sounds like it's impossible would be impossible to do that um the the problem would be um if someone protects themselves with a weak password or Uh. the four digit code um Although maybe Apple has designed themselves to a point where they can't. The secure enclave, I think you're right, Leo. What I described where the unique ID never leaves a secure enclave, it it may no longer be possible for that to happen. And this is something I, that, that they started doing more recently with like the Just iPhone. the 5S. Yeah. Just the 5S. So that, that this is that. a year-old article. So maybe that's the case The uh, that this has changed. And yeah. I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if Apple's response to a waiting list of law enforcement asking to unencrypt iPhone data would be to, well, let's make that impossible. Yes, yes. <laughs> let's, and, you know, let's not do users, that anymore. 
Yes, and users benefit. I mean, because Apple can't say no if right. they have the ability to do it. So right. they said, okay, we're, 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 we don't want the ability to do it. No, you know, we don't want users knowing that we have the ability to do it. I don't think they have the ability to do it. And that's, again, everything we're describing is specific to the newest iPhone, not older yes. iPhones. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Under accessories, add-on accessories, because, again, security has to go push itself all the way out to, you know, to the entire perimeter. Apple writes, when an accessory communicates with an iOS device using a lightning connector cable or via Wi-Fi or Bluetooth, the device asks the accessory, that is the Apple device, the Apple iPhone or iPad, asks the accessory to prove it has been authorized by Apple by responding with an Apple-provided certificate, which is verified by the device. The device then sends a challenge, that is the iPhone or iPad, sends a challenge which the accessory must answer with a signed response. So individual accessories that plug into iOS devices have to have crypto in them and a a unique certificate that they use to sign a challenge from Apple. And then get this. I'm thinking, wow, how, you know, how do you enforce this? I mean, I mean, how do you make that practical? This process is entirely handled by a custom integrated circuit that Apple provides to approved accessory manufacturers and is transparent to the accessory itself. So it's essentially, Apple has closed down the hardware attachment ecosystem to the point where you have to, you know, if you're going to make high-end accessories for Apple devices, you need to get chips for them, one per device. So they totally control the attachment device market and put these chips in your devices, which is the only way to get the device to authenticate itself to do your Apple device. Wow. And uh, absent that authentication, if that is, if the accessory does not provide that authentication, its access is limited to analog audio and a small subset of serial UART audio playback controls. So basically, headphones is the only thing because headphones have no chip. Right. And so headphones with, you know, stop, fast forward, play and so forth. That's all you can do. Again with the analog hole. You can't get around it. And, Leo, we've run out of time again. <laughs> You're not going to do a part three, are you? I can't believe it. But I've saved the best part for last. We're That's still waiting about this elliptic curve problem. We still wait. Okay. We wait on. Next week. That's Next all right. Week. That's good. Uh, yeah, fascinating stuff. Of course, yeah. all of this is immediately uh, eliminated by a simple addition of a go-to-fail line and some code. But, no, actually it's not, is it? No, no, that was that was application land problem, right, right. as as opposed to I mean it, it was it was it was a library in the OS, so all applications that depended upon that library were subject to that attack. Yes, as far library. as we know, no one ever took advantage of it. It was something that was fortunately discovered and fixed quite quickly as soon as Apple realized there their mistake. Go. There you go. So next week. The crown jewels of uh, the iOS security adventure, which continues. <laughs> it's a great subject, and it, and, it's, and it really is an object lesson in how this stuff ought to be done. Steve yeah, Gibson. It's, it's 
Fascinating. Is at grc.com. That's where you'll find Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive, maintenance and recovery utility. It's also where work goes on on Squirrel. And if people want to give you a Squirrel, a 16, Ooh, a 16 yes, bit right, Squirrel. Right, right. I completely forgot that. Um, dr- uh, you can reach me through the mailbag okay. uh, at Squirrel. In the Squirrel pages, there's a feedback page. Uh, just I, there's no way to submit a binary, but tell me you've got something, and I'll send you an email address that you can use. For, Could they for tweet at you? Could they tweet it at you? Yeah, you can also tweet because I, I watch my Twitter feed very, very closely. But for people who aren't tweeting, who's uh, not just tweeting? These, Everybody those, tweets. Uh, there's some old, old, old farts. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I wasn't before I was. Well, we so took a while I to get him there, but we got him there. At sggrc. That's the. Uh, Twitter handle for Steve at SGGRC. He has 16 kilobit audio at the uh, site. He also has very nice uh, professionally transcribed uh, transcriptions uh, at GRC.com. You can go there to uh, post feedback. Eventually, we'll do another Q&A session at uh, (laughs) (laughs) two weeks from now. Two weeks from now at GRC.com slash feedback. And uh, we have full quality uh, audio and video on our site as well, twit.tv slash SN for security now. One of the oldest URLs on twit.tv because this is the second oldest show on the network. And I have one piece of news, believe it or not. What's that? I just just got notified that Firefox version 28 is released. (laughs) Well, there you go. Just, just this instant. Wow. So uh, I don't even know what it is, but I'm going to go get it, and so should everybody else. <laughs> it probably it. fixes the uh, the pwn-to-own problems. I would guess that would be the first thing they'd address. Yep. Yep. Uh, uh, you can, uh, let's see what else. Uh, you can watch us do the show live. That's always fun. 1 p.m. Pacific. That's 4 p.m. Eastern time, uh, 2000 UTC, uh, every uh, Tuesday on uh, yep. on twit.tv. But you again, Talk yeah. about my evolving beard. Yeah, we do stuff before and after the show that's unique. <laughs> it is not available on any podcast unless somebody else makes one. <laughs> I always I fear that someday somebody might make a show of the stuff Outtakes. between the show. Yeah. <laughs> that would be bad. Um what else? I guess that's it. We'll just uh, have to take a break. Adjourn now before your buys coming up. Steve, thank you so much. We will talk again next week. Thanks, Leo.